Hi, I'm Annette, and I'm so glad you've joined us again for the fifth episode of the Queensland Rail History Podcast. Our podcast is all about discovering the rich story of the railways across our state and how they evolved and the hardworking people who created them. Our four previous episodes have looked at the beginning of the railway story in Queensland about the construction of the Coranda Scenic Railway journey. In episode three, we looked at the Patchwork Railway and how the railway really became a sprawling figure that it is today. Many towns in Queensland became connected when the line finally arrived and were able to be part of the large railway story. Episode four, we looked at homespun adaptions to problems, designs and standardisation and gave a local solution to the needs of the big enterprise that was the Queensland Railways. Today, we look at the crossing of the main range from the present day township of Murphy's Creek to Toowoomba and what truly was a marvellous feat of Victorian era engineering. You just go down there and you can just sense that, you know, them old guys, you know, back in them days just worked so hard to, to get something that looked so beautiful. Be that as it may, we, in common with the whole community, hail with pleasure the inauguration of the railway in Queensland. An old woman in our carriage was very proud of this little bit of railroad. One thing that we always seem to come back to is the story of building the railway up the main range to Toowoomba, the economy that was upmost, and the 500 metre climb to the range was a true challenge. However, the story of building up the range really is a tale unto itself. Today, I am again talking with Greg Hallam, our historian with Queensland Rail. Greg, can you quickly give us a take through how it all began? Quickly? Oh, okay, Annette. Uh, the Act of Parliament that authorised the construction of the line was passed in 1863. That covered section one of the uh, line from Ipswich to Big Scam. Uh, it was a total distance of 21 miles, 38 kilometres. Then on August the 24th, 1864, the tenders were called for section two, three, four and five, which would take the railway up the main range. Uh, that was about another 120 kilometres, if memory serves me, and the contract was for £515,000. Don't ask me the equivalent of today's money, Nanette. I know you're going to ask me that. That was actually approved on February the 27th in 1865, and it was to Messrs. Petto, Brassie and Betts of England. And Section 5, which is the ascent of the main range railway, that actually ran literally from a shepherd's hut at a place called Murphy's Creek, and Murphy's Creek was actually spelled with an E in it at that point when you see the original plans in the 1860s. It was a shepherd's hut and it ran up here to Toowoomba where the station is today, which is Russell Street. It was the most difficult to engineer. It involved nine tunnels, 47 bridges, was nearly 18 miles or 30 kilometres in length. So, Greg, can you actually tell me where Murphy's Creek is? Murphy's Creek? No, oh, it's at the bottom of the range. And it was um, a settlement that's there today. A small township was a big railway town. And, uh, yes, it's actually on what's called the Cobham Co Terrace Drive uh, that takes you from Toowoomba down and through the Lockyer Valley in that area as well. So definitely there. And the other signpost, it's on the way to and from Spring Bluff as well. Um, I have a couple of random questions to throw at you, Greg. I'm sorry. Section 1, did it have the same contractors as 2345? Well, the entire box and dice went to um, Petto, Brassy and Betts. And they were... Yeah, they were the big worldwide contractor. And uh, I think in a previous episode, or I might have mentioned someone recently, 
their workforce in the 1860s was about 200 or 250,000 around the world. They were building railways everywhere. So it was remarkable, remarkable stuff. Now, the work wasn't carried out by just one individual, was it? Um, no, it was what uh, Pedro Brass in Betts did, and a lot of the Victorian era engineers used to do. They used to um, contract the work out to subcontractors and other subcontractors, and similar to this day and age. Um, so there were lots of different companies that were involved with uh, Pedro Brassy and Betts on that. So they'd some contract out for various works. Um, could be for tunnels. Uh, could be for bridges and things like that. Um, they called them sub-agents, if memory serves me correct. The um, one thing, though, I did actually appoint an engineer in charge of heavy works, and in this case it was Robert Ballard, not the doctor who discovered the wreck of the Titanic or the Bismarck or anything like that. This Robert Ballard was actually an engineer. He was um, 25 years old when he was appointed to undertake the heavy works, as they called it, on the Toowoomba Range. And uh, he was appointed to that role and um, he actually reported, <laughs> as you would know, in uh, any form of uh, reporting structures, he approached, he reported to a Samuel Wilcox um, who was in charge of like all the railway works. But Robert Ballard is um, the one who was in charge of what they call the heavy works, the tunnels, the, uh, bridges and things like that. Annette. No, we hear a fair bit about Robert Ballard and we know that other people who did a fair bit of work on the railways have towns and bridges and things like that. Is there anything named after him? There was Ballard's Camp that was up here. There was a station for many years up here on the Toowoomba Range, close to the 1970s, I think, called Ballard. And there's actually a suburb of Toowoomba up here as well called Ballard. It's all named after him. Actually, Annette, going back 30 years ago now, literally, I actually was contacted when I was doing my undergrad work by um, a fellow who was a descendant of Robert Ballard from England. And he contacted me because he was um, couldn't believe that at that stage, 125 years old, he was still remembered here in Queensland. He was a member of the Ballard's family and everything like that. Um, his name was Major Robert Barnes, British Army, retired. And he lived in Herefordshire, to quote him, where the cows come from. Um, and he contacted me just with um, passing on some of the family history from the, the Ballards. And uh, yeah, he, he just could not believe that 125 years old, you know, his ancestor was still being remembered in uh, commemorated and uh, having a suburb named after him as well. I guess when he helped shape a railway. Well, that's right. It's the works that you do that live after you. That's the important thing in the history. That's what we know. Do we know when work actually began to go up the hill, constructing and building the railway up the main range? That's a really good question, Annette. A lot of the um, papers of the day actually carried stories of construction work on the main range. They did that um, for many, many years. And uh, in the case of the uh, main range railway... You start seeing reports in 1965, they start appearing early part March, April, and they start, obviously work was, you know, really beginning on the works on the main range, so it's probably around about March, April, 1865, you actually start seeing the evidence appearing that they were digging, you know, they were preparing works and things like that. There was a really interesting article that was written in the 1866, I think it was, and they described the works on the Toowoomba range, and the correspondence anonymous, you know, we don't know in this day and age, they call it a very up and down place. And that's a very interesting description because I think an up and down place described like the works on the range and you know, what was going to happen and everything like that, as you'd appreciate. So where did all those people who were working on the railway come from? They were actually recruited from overseas because the ability to build a railway here just was not there. So um, in common practice with Pedro Brassi and Bits, they recruited and then they'd actually, the uh, workers who were recruited overseas were then actually 
had to get their way here to Queensland, but you know, ships that were provided, you know, passage and things like that. They actually had immigration agents from Queensland which were working in uh, Britain at that stage. They even somehow got across to what they called Scandinavia, which is actually the countries, you know, probably northern Germany and that in this day and age as well. And uh, so they'd actually charter people to go out to recruit. And that was the important thing, Annette. They needed skilled, experienced people to undertake this work. And especially in building a railway, had, um, as Gavin, who we'll meet during this episode today, will talk about you know, specialist work, specialist te- uh, techniques and you know, basically knowing how to build a railway. So I recruited from, um, uh, they came from, um, they especially recruited. Um, they also came over in a number of ships. So there were special ships that were chartered by the Queensland government to bring all the railway navvies, I suppose you'd say, with their families and bring everything over with them as well. So they were all specially recruited. Um, there were handbills that were produced and everything like that. It was very interesting. Um, I think if you came out here, um, they came out on the Black Ball Line, I think it was, and they were special you know, ships that were chartered, clipper ships, sailing ships. So it would have been probably about, uh, you know, about, what, two, two and a half, three months' journey to come here to the colony of Queensland from halfway around the world. So a handbill, that's basically an ad saying we're looking for people? In this day and age, you know, you probably go to, you know, social media and things like that for work recruitment. They really were looking for people, what they called excavators, you know, specialist people who could actually, you know, do the proper labouring works. Um, bridge carpenters, masons, stone masons. Um, there was also um, uh, artisans, as they called them. And uh, the artisans is, uh, was literally people very skilled in doing, um, uh, well, especially with stonework and things like that, because they had to make use of a lot of sandstone. So um, you've got to imagine the you know, 1860s in England or somewhere like that, isn't it? You know, people literally going around handing out these bills they probably went to where railway works were actually um, being undertaken at that stage um, in Britain. And uh, again, you know, that, that'd be how they'd be recruiting. So it was basically, you know, um, throw the pick and shovel in here and come halfway around the world and build a railway here in Queensland. Yeah. So we went headhunting. In this day and age, that's exactly what you probably call it anyway, Annette. Our guest today to talk about the work on the main range in modern day is Gavin Anderson. Gavin is the asset manager West Morton for Network Operations South. He commenced his career as a nipper in a bridging gang at Miles on the Western Line and has been with Queensland Rail for 36 years. As asset manager, Gavin looks after the main range railway and follows on a tradition stretching back nearly 155 years of maintaining this important piece of railway infrastructure. He commenced in the asset manager role in 2013. Gavin, you started out as a nipper in a bridging gang. Can you explain to our listeners today what that job was? Yeah, so a a, a nipper's job was more like a... uh, today's modern talk is an apprentice or a um, junior bridge worker I guess so I started when I was 16 and generally was learning how to uh, become a bridge carpenter so you started off as a uh, nipper boiling the jug for the boys and then slowly um, getting to learn how you dress girders and transoms and bridge timbers and and do uh, you know culvert work and cement work so it was um, basically a labouring position to work into a um, Bridge carpenter. Lots of words I already don't know there. What's a girder? A girder, so a girder is like a, um, varies in length, so it can go from four metres to nine metres and sort of supports all the transoms, which are similar to sleepers. So the girders will run in the same 
same direction as the railway line, and then you got the sleepers or in bridge term, uh, bridge talk. It's transoms and then the railway line there. So it was part of the top structure of the bridge. Cool. I'm going to learn a lot and, today. And back in my day, we used to put them in with ropes, and they were around 750 kilos. So we used to lower them off the top of the bridge, underneath the bridge, using ropes. So uh, technology's changed a lot these days, and we use cranes and all types of uh, better equipment. So you're good with the pulley system then? Yes, yep. Starting to forget it now, these days, though. You know, you have a look at some of the bridge girders that we have. You know, they've been in track for 90 years. These days, you, you, you probably won't get a girder to the last 30 or 40 years. You know, it's just a lot greener, a lot younger, whereas back in the earlier days or back, you know, wouldn't say olden days when I first started, but uh, you know the timber was a lot more older, I guess, when you when you got it. And when you started out, you know, as you've been the nipper and the gang, and that learned to work with timber. So, so who taught you? Who basically taught you to work with the timber and that? And, you know, how how was it done back then, anyway, Gavin? Yeah. So when I first started, it was uh, my boss was was uh, Noel Clancy. I was in a um, pretty good bridge gang because the guys always uh, allowed you to have a go. You know, I'd. I'd you know, get on an ads for those people that don't know what an ads is. Very, it's a um, very sharp instrument that's probably six or seven inches wide at the thing, and it's got a handle, and you swing it between your legs, and it shaves the timber off the thing, so that you, when you if you're dressing a girder, you you're dressing it to a blue line where you've marked it, and you and you swing the ads between your legs, it's just shaved the timber off. Um, sometimes you miss though, and ended up cutting your leg, but um, only happened to me once, thank God. <laughs> you learn after the first time, right? Yeah, yeah. See, back in them days, we used to dress all our timber, all the girders, all the transoms. They, um, we used to dress those every single one of them. Now they come pre-dressed. Well, not the girders, but the um, the um, transoms. But um, we've got bush mills now. Yeah, with the timber bridges, the last one on the Toowoomba Range was Kings Bridge, I think it was, and that was the one that got knocked away in 2011 with the floods up here, wasn't it? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. So, and then it's now a. Um, a concrete ballast top bridge. Yeah, some of the girders they um for the community down Murphy's Creek they actually gave the girders from the Kings Bridge I think to make a hitching rail outside yeah. of the pub there. Yeah, no, that's true. Yeah, you see a horse tied up there every now and then. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. and I remember when they uh, installed it, the gang came down from up here, and there was a young fella in that one. He had his grandfather's ads, and he had it all set and ready to go, so they could actually ads it off, you know, for yeah. the hitching rail and everything like that. You yeah, know, so, so it was great. So. Everything back in my day, we, we travelled on the track by section car. Even uh, when I first started, we used to camp in red wagons on the on the track, and they used to just um, pull a train up beside it, hook it on, and you'd go to, go to your next site. That sounds amazing. It was good days, actually, really good days. Arthur, who works with us up here in Toowoomba, of course, he was to be um, in charge of electrical work and. His camp wagon was Camp Wagon, I think, 34. Yeah. Found a photograph of Camp Wagon 34, and he used to travel the entire state in that yeah. camp wagon. And he was also talking about one time Walt and Gary was uh, sort of like wrapped around the potbelly stove in the middle of a very cold winter there, basically, yeah. you know, to try and stop freezing and that, you know. But, yeah. yeah, I remember one day I used to travel in the camp wagon because I was only 16 and didn't have a licence. So we were out on the Wandoan line, and we stayed there, and I was in the camp wagon. We were moving to McAllister. So I just stayed in the wagon, the train come along during the night and hooked up and got in the Dolby and then they couldn't shunt us and I had to stay in Dolby in the wagons for two days before they got us back to McAllister. But it, it, was, it would have been the coldest place in, in Australia, I reckon, at McAllister during winter because it's just a big, broad flat. We used to have these um, 
water bags and I'd, I'd take a water bag into the into the um, wagon with me overnight. I'd just have a drink of water, and you'd wake up in the morning. It was frozen. It was incredible. And I'd have to get the fire lit for the, when the boys turned up to make sure they could uh, warm themselves up before we went to work. There was a lot of opportunity back in them days with Queensland Rail to travel to different places. I, I remember I started as a nipper and then decided to make it a career, and so I just put in for promotion jobs. And actually, when I got one, I, I didn't even know where it was. I had to look it up on a map to find out where I was going. And it was it was awesome, you know. You travel most of the state. So where was it, Gavin? Where was the promotion to? It was Alpha. Alpha? Yeah. Ah, yes. <laughs> so I did three years in Alpha and then uh, went from there to Blackhall. From, uh, I spent about 18 months in Blackhall. Because we were a migratory gang, we worked around a lot, so we were sort of based in a town but then worked within hundreds of kilometres of the area. So I spent a lot of time working at Longreach, actually, on the Longreach and Winton section while I was camped at Blackhall. And then went from Blackhall to Emerald, was only there for four months, and then got another promotion down to Mundubra and then into Toowoomba, where I've been ever since for the last uh, 2004, I think I moved here, so 16 years, 17 years here in Toowoomba. So we've talked about navvies a lot and what it was like for them. What would I need to do to apply for the job? OK, Annette, OK, let's take you back then, well, being a railway navvy. Your pay rate was uh, quoted as being six or seven shillings a day. Uh, the artisans, that we mentioned before, they actually received the top money, Annette, so that was about nine to 12 shillings per day. That was really, really big money in that period. When you look at it, in 1914, when the first AIF went overseas, they were called, uh, what, five-bob-a-day tourists. That was one of the best-paid soldiers in the world at that stage, and half a century before... The people who have been recruited to work here on the railway line are being paid really good money. But that makes sense when you think about because you're going to uproot your life and come halfway around the world to build the railway. That includes your family in, in cases as well too. The other interesting thing was you actually had a list of what you could bring because the idea was if you're going to they were going to recruit, you had to have almost like something behind you. So um, on the handbill, you're required to have uh, six shirts, Six pairs of stockings, that's, you know, heavy heavy socks and everything like that. Uh, two flannels, and that's not the variety that's worn with an Ugg, you know, Ugg boots or anything like that. But your flannels in that case tend to be things like um, heavy uh, like heavy undershirts and those sorts of things. Because you need that in Queensland. Oh, well, yeah. <laughs> uh, you had to have two pairs of new shoes and two um, complete sets of strong exterior clothing. You know what that strong exterior clothing would have been? Moleskins. So... So moleskins was very much, you know, the clothing of the workers. So um, that would have all been packed into what they call the sea trunk. And uh, so, so basically it wasn't a case of just turning up with the clothes you had on your back. You actually had to have, you know, these uh, clothing as well. Clothing indicated at least you had some means behind you as well too, Annette. You know, you just weren't an itinerant with <laughs> nothing in the world sort of thing. I was thinking it would have cost a fair bit back then to have all of that set up ready to come. Well, that was part of it, you know. If they're going to um, recruit people to come and work here, they actually wanted them to be, well, let's be honest, they wanted people who were had some provident or means behind them as well, you know. You wanted good people to come to Queensland. That, was the, uh, that would have been the thinking of the government of the day. So how many people did we attract from around Britain and other places in Europe to work on the main range? Oh, Annette, you're on fire today. Oh, boy. Um... There was Section 5, which was the main range railway, which we mentioned before. The largest extent, there are over 1,000 workers on its construction. I think it could have been up to 1,300 at one stage. 
Um, in April of 1866, there was a record that were about 798 workers were counted being employed on the various works on the main range railway. Just 1,300 people. That is a lot of people. That is a lot of people. And Robert Ballard, in charge of the heavy works, a 25-year-old, he was actually in charge of all those workmen. Wow, a 25-year-old in charge of 1,300 people. Well, great power comes great responsibility, Annette. He must have been a pretty organised man to organise all of that. I imagine he would have been, yes. Funny you should say that. Um, when I was 25, I actually was at my undergrad at university and I was looking at doing a paper on the construction of the main range railway. When you were 25? When I was 25. I was a late, <laughs> I was a mature age student, Annette. I no, might... no, I was thinking that was young, could you pick that, not old. <laughs> <laughs> I was working in management for Woolworths. I was, yeah, trying to work my way up that ladder. Work your way up a ladder or build a railway. There you go. Challenges of being 25. Was it any different being on the range versus a general navvy? Probably not, Annette, because um, in this day and age they talk about transferable skills and all that sort of thing. Basically, um... The difference would have been because it was hard work, um, because it's in a concentrated space. You're going through rock, it's um, it's range country, it's hilly, you know, there would have been ravines as they called them back then, compared to, say, building across, you know, large flat trenches of Queensland. But the work was, again, pretty much the same. There was uh, picks, there were shovels. Um, there was also um, a labour hierarchy as well, too, that they actually, when we mentioned the pay rates before, like artisans and that, and probably at the very top of their... Um, um, the hierarchy were the stonemasons because they're the ones that actually uh, created the sandstone um, bricks and things like that that actually went with the tunnel works and also on the culvert works and on the bridges and things like that. And because it was very much artisan work, they were actually at the top of your labour hierarchy. Then you had what they call plate layers and um, lengthsmen and they were actually highly valued for their track laying skills. Pick spades and wheelbarrows, they were used for excavations. Um, there was assistance from uh, horse and bullock teams. Um, now, amongst the navvies on the range, there was, um, there was an employ- employment hierarchy, and that actually came along with the railway materials from England. So it's an entire culture that was um, in- imported as well. Top of the labourers' hierarchy stood the uh, stonemasons. They were employed for um, finishing the sandstone blocks. That was mainly the nine tunnels on the range, but culverts, the bridge works and that. And then you have what they call the plate layers and the lengthsmen. And um, a lengthsman is actually an old name for what they call the fettlerers in the railways as well. And a lengthsman was basically um, a track layer. So in this day and age, they'd be a track laying gang or someone like that. People actually um, lay the sleepers and lay the rails. They were also highly valued for their track laying skills as well, Annette. A stonemason, an apprenticeship? How long would they have done their training? That's a really good question. But um, yeah, stonemasons was... Um, very valuable skill. Apprenticeship would have taken years. Some of the tunnels down the range, and they'd still got in a couple of places, the stonemasons with their own individual uh, special marks and things like that. And when you think about the stonemasons and that with the skills and everything, that goes back to the building of the great cathedrals in Europe, you know, so that's uh, those skills and everything like that. And the entire artisan approach dated back centuries, imported here and then used on the uh, works on the main range. Um, another question. So we know we have got nine tunnels on the great main range. Would a navvy have worked on that or did they have to have some special skill to do the tunnels? Well, literally, you know, they're almost like a project approach in this day and age, but you think about it, you'd have to, the navvies would have been involved in boring the tunnels with hand drills and picks and shovels. Um, they used black powder and things like that, you know, to dislodge rock. But a lot of it was done by pick, shovel and hand. 
And when, once they actually drove the bores through, as they called um, from, uh, they, they called the bores, the tunnel bores and that, and actually, you know, piercing through the rock and that, then the masons and that, the stonemasons wouldn't come in after that to actually line the tunnels, you know, to do, um, provide, the, um, to give support to the tunnel and also for drainage and things like that. So the navvies, they would have actually pierced the rock, dug their way through, and then the, um, and the artisans would have come in to finish off the work. Wow. In our history... Have we ever had a tunnel collapse in works? There was actually going to be 10 tunnels up here. Um, if you read the historical record, there was one up at a near top of the range at a place called Harlexton, but apparently the rock strata wasn't good enough and they actually just opted to, uh, build, a, to build a very deep cutting in place of a tunnel. should have been 10, but they went for nine in the very deep cutting. And I think it was called Cameron's Cutting or something like that, Cameron's Camp or Cameron's Cutting up towards the top here. You build a railway the easiest way, not through the hardest way. Thank you very much. One of the recent projects were the tunnel lowering works on the main range railway. What sort of challenges were involved in the tunnel lowering project? Obviously they're all historical so minimising any impacts to the tunnel was obviously very important. The confined spaces, you know, like a lot of drainage work had to go on, you're obviously lowering the tunnel so there wasn't a lot of room to get machinery in. A lot of work crews had to work side by side, you know, you had... um, set windows where they had to obviously get um, slab track in so part of the, some of the tunnels were just um, dug down and lowered and then just filled back in with ballast others were a slab track uh, what's a slab track so it's like a concrete floor and the railway lines placed on that instead of on a sleepers so and there's no ballast it's just a concrete slab and the tracks sort of bolted down to that obviously um, tunnels are very tight and it was to increase uh, to bigger containers. So the um, limitations on on the, um, oh, how would I put it, you know, like um, you had virtually had to be, you know, you couldn't be 10 millimetres out of line. Otherwise, the, um, with the cant on the um, railway line, so the cant is um, that it brings it up when you go around a tight radius curve, it applies a cant. So then that obviously tilts the, the wagons and brings them in closer to the tunnel wall. So there was uh, very little room for movement, so you had to nearly be, you had to be 100% spot on where you nailed that track down. It's amazing to think it's down to a centimetre. Yeah, even closer than that. When you had to do that, what was, did I have to use a laser guide, like laser, laser light for guidance, or was it, yeah, what was it, yeah, hand so eye, or how was it? A lot of, for the slab tracks, a lot of it was done um, out in the precast, so they took a um, template, so obviously they worked through all the models and um, come up with the models and done the template and then they actually drilled them, drilled the slabs out on, out of, uh, out of the site, and then just brought the track back in. But obviously just placing that as well had to be very, very close to where it was, you know, nearly, nearly 100% spot on. The other thing with the lowering, how how far did they actually have to lower the tunnels there, Gavin? Uh, in some cases it, it varied, you know, six, seven hundred mil up to 900 mil in places. And then obviously it's just not the tunnel floor that had to be lowered. Obviously the approaches and when you're going from one tunnel into another cutting or something like that. So there was a a lot of planning and a lot of work went into it. How long did the project take? Probably, um, you know, close to 12 months for it to, to, to come together. To get the drains, in some cases you'd pull the tunnel out, put the drains in, then you'd, then you'd reinstate the tunnel back on its original alignment. And then the next close, you'd come through and then do the lowering. You know, it's just not a one-phase thing. You had to do it in 
in different phases. And how big was the workforce for the tunnel lowering that would have been out on the line there? Because it was extremely hard rock, so they had these specialist machines come in to, to gouge the rock out. It could have been anywhere, you know, if we were working on one or two ranges, it was around the clock, so you had obviously crews overlapping, so, you know, it could be up to 200 people on the range. It would have been what, pretty much continual work for over a 24-hour period? Or yes, what? it certainly was, yeah. It was day and night, 24-7. Mm-hmm. Yep. So if it was a 10-day closure, they'd have crews going day and night for the, for the 10 days. Yeah. Would have been incredible. Yeah. <laughs> With the tunnels on the range, have any of them got their own individual nature in a way or are they completely different or what do you think, Gavin? Obviously some are on a straight, most of them are on curves, you know, so um, Tunnel 4 is is a is a tunnel that has a reverse curve in, virtually inside of it. So that's, to me, is probably unique. I, I don't know of where I've ever seen or heard of another one like that. Tunnel 8 is a manhole tunnel, so... Three parts of the way through the tunnel, it, it just takes a diversion out to the side there. And I, I don't know the full story to that, whether it was an escape route or if, if something had gone wrong. But, um, you know, the Little Liverpool range is a massive, massive length. So you sort of come into a curve like that. So it just comes back the other way like two curves, you know. So you start curving that way, then it comes back the opposite way. So nearly like an S, yeah. fair bit about navvies and where they came from but where did the name come from okay that's a really good one 18th century england and the navigations they call them which were all the um, canal works and the big um, inland waterways were being constructed in the 18th century in england there were a lot of them were farm laborers because the agricultural revolution had come through there were big changes in agricultural practice a lot of them lost their traditional work and jobs but at the same point they had these enormous engineering works that were going on and a lot of them were employed directly to dig the canals and the where the name came from they were called navigations and the yeah, inland waterways were called inland navigations the laborers who worked on them uh, they were called navigators and that's nothing to do with, you know, maps and show compasses or anything like that, but it was just a term that they were the navigators. They were the ones who dug on the navigations. It was for, and then we shortened down to navvies. Obviously when it got here because <laughs> <laughs> that's our Australian culture. Yeah, it actually began before then, but you know what the nice thing is? A lot of the fellows who work on the tracks these days, they call them, you know, track-laying gangs or the fettlers and that, I still call them navvies, and they, a lot of them still call themselves navvies as well. You know, they've got this incredible sense of that sort of uh, work and association with railway construction going back two centuries or more now. And quite a few of them still call themselves navvies anyway. I'm happy to call them navvies as well, yeah. What was life like in the camps back then, Greg? We're very, very fortunate because, you know, the papers, and if you look on Trove in this day and age, um, which is the National Library of Australia's um, digitisation project for newspapers and that, it gives an incredible snapshot of life and the old inquest papers held at state archives again. But um, I guess in this day and age, we probably think it was fairly rough and ready, but for the period, we're talking the 1860s, it's a colonial existence, it was a settled form of life. And that was the thing, uh, going back 30 years ago now, I remember a fellow in the railway describing the works, you know, Greg, they must have lived like animals. And I was happy to say after quite a number of years of looking at the story, they didn't live like animals in that. They were people, you know. They lived, um, a third of the men were married and they could have had up to, well, I think it was eight children. And they, that accompanied them halfway around the world on ships. So um, you probably learn about a third of the men with very, very large families. They lived in bark humpies. They lived under canvas. 
um, they're almost like a, don- a donger form of existence in this day and age, you know, with like, for camps and things like that. It's sort of like fly in, fly out without being able to fly in and fly out. So it's a, um, you know, it's a temporary township that's uh, there. But it had a lot of amenities that went with it as well too. Pedro Brassi and Bits actually, you know, and through Robert Ballard, they actually looked after the workers and their families, you know, reasonably well for the period. They had a prefabricated church. It used to travel up the line to the camps and things like this. The railway lines advanced. They had um, special offices set up for the police because they needed police in the camps as well too. Um, and they also had uh, what they called assembly halls, which are very large places. You could get about 200, 250 people in them. They used to have things like dances there, concerts. They had impromptu schools, I guess you'd call them, or um, informal schools. And quite a number of the women who were educated in the camps, they ran uh, school and you know, teach reading and writing. But that was open to everyone. So a lot of the navvies who were illiterate and things like that took the opportunity to learn their letters, as they called it then. So there was also um, a schooling that was promoted as well. So um, they would have been like in the gold rush, I imagine, you know, very similar form of existence, you know, and uh, yeah, <laughs> it certainly wasn't a bed of roses, you know. It was you know, it could be pretty wild in, in the uh, navvy camps and that. Yeah, so um, the last nine kilometres up here were fairly difficult. There were five tunnels. Uh, there were the three major bridges, and Ballard's camp, we mentioned Ballard before, that was the principal centre of our construction work on the on what they call the second incline of the range, which comes up from Spring Bluff. The line was all like built in two big inclines, coming up from Murphy's Creek, came up through a place called Tipperary, up to Holmes, Holmes Camp, make its way up to what we call Spring Bluff today, and that was on the level. And then you had another climb from there all the way up here to Toowoomba, and uh, that's where Ballard's camp was, putting about halfway up the works there and there. In the end of 1865, there was the first eight-hour strike that actually took place in Queensland for an eight-hour day, and uh, it was one of the first in Australia and took place on the main range here as well. A strike in 1865. Mm-hmm. Yep. The navvies had a bit of a reputation. As soon as they pick up work, then they go on strike, and that was basically for conditions because they were working a 10-hour day, and there was a big movement in the 1860s for the eight-hour day. Um, eight hours day uh, was the eight hours sleep, eight hours recreation, eight hours work. Um, instead of these very long, you know, work days, 10, 12 hours or something like that. Um, so, yeah, it was one of the first eight-hour strikes in Australia took place here in, on the main range. It led to a lot of concern down in Brisbane because there were stories going around that a great army of navvies were going to, you know, march on Toowoomba. And uh, the other thing was that they were going to march on Brisbane. They went on strike. Some got the eight-hour day. Not all of them got it. They worked a 10-hour day and they got a pay increase. That was basically the navvy tradition, go on strike straight away. Was there any other trouble on the range when building the railway? Lots. Um, in July of 1866, work was suspended. That followed the collapse of the um, Agribank in England and Queensland ran out of money. Um, now, nearly all the navvies on the southern and western works, they were thrown out of work and that was about 1,500 workers unemployed. So they jumped on a boat after kidding themselves out with expensive gear. Mm-hmm. We're here for 12 months maybe mm-hmm. and then they're... Mm-hmm. Sacked. Mm-hmm. Not happy. Not happy at all. And they showed it. It was pretty desperate times. There was no money. The colony, had run, the colony was basically out of money. It run bust and everything like that. They took it into their own hands. And on the 20th of August in 1866, there was a committee of navvies. They met down at Helladon. And they actually decided to march on Toowoomba initially and then proceed down the length of railway line. They're going to stop at each camp and use compulsory measures to encourage others to join them. That's in on the strike. So, you know, it's pretty fierce. These are you know, very hard workers and everything like that. They're very well organised. 
And I know up here in Toowoomba, they're running stories that they thought the place would be burnt to the ground by this army of navvies descending on. Brisbane was terrified. And there's actually, um, when it was happening, uh, comparing stories that were in the paper to what had gone on in the American Civil War. And there were stories about, you know, there's a rampaging army, you know, coming through, you know, and it was, a lot of it was overblown and everything like that. But uh, we're in Providence, as I said, this is August. Now, early September, you know, a lot of them have got young families and they're starving. You know, they had no money. So they decided actually the well-organised navvies to take their grievances to Parliament and they did it in their own unique manner. Uh, 200 of them actually uh, decided to go from uh, March on Brisbane and basically they demand relief for those without work. So what they did is that Helen, they commandeered, they didn't hijack, they commandeered an Ipswich-bound goods train and uh, they packed into eight goods wagons and uh, they set off down the line towards Ipswich and then they are going to march on Brisbane from there. Much shorter march from Ipswich <laughs> to Brisbane than to Wilbur to Brisbane. I like the coordinated transport approach to this, you know. We build a line, we'll take the train. And what happened then, there was an infamous um, um, civil disturbance in Brisbane called the Breadall Blood Riots, and that was in 1866 in September. There was a major riot in George Street. They were pulling up cobblestones in the street, a lot of the unemployed, and they were flinging them at the police. There was this great big riot, and they called it Breadall Blood. And that's what they were calling for, you know, Breadall Blood. And uh, that's how desperate things have become. But again, you had this very well-organised group in the centre of it. And um, I always thought it was impressive, the fact they decided to commandeer, you know, a goods train, you know, and pack themselves into it. We build a railway, we'll use it for our purposes, basically. Yes, with their compulsory measures. (laughs) That's right. Fortunately, the, the government was able to get new loans out of England. And basically that brought money back into the colony. And that uh, happened in October of 1866, and that prevented further disaster. The workers were re-employed, but they weren't in the great numbers that they were before, Annette, because uh, many had headed off into New South Wales, into the Weddon Mountains, uh, to try their luck on the gold fields, and that's around Forbes and those areas. And they also got a pay cut, which the navvies weren't happy with, but, you know, <laughs> there's work in the offing, okay, no, they'll take it up. And uh, that's what they decided to do. But, yeah, a lot of them actually literally tossed in the job, tossed in the tools and went down to try and find gold in, um, in the Weddon Mountains in New South Wales. Mm. Did we hear if any of them were successful? Actually, had I been in that period, I probably would take my chance of still working on the railway than go and try and pan for gold in it. Better with a pick and shovel up here than uh, with a gold pan in New South Wales. Oh, it sounds like our navvies have had to deal with a lot. They've come out here from England, fully mm-hmm. kitted out. Mm-hmm. They've been paid a certain rate for so long, working a 10-hour day, six days a week. We've had our strike and we've come back to eight hours, so mm-hmm. taken a pay cut with that. Mm. Then we've had the state go bust and had to take a pay cut with that, where they've had no work at all. It's very changing circumstance for them as we're moving along. In this day and age, Annette, you'd say very resilient people. But by the end of 1866, uh, work was progressing and it got to such an extent, you know, really picking up the pace on things. So in early December, they had a special separation day excursion train that was organised from between Brisbane and Hallidon. Separation day, that was um, December the 10th, and that's the day that Queensland separated from New South Wales in 1859. So they had a public holiday, you know, had a special train for that. The journey was uh, three hours and five minutes the fares were seven shillings and sixpence or five shillings. That's a day's pay, <laughs> basically, when you're thinking it. So, yeah, day's pay actually to uh, do the special train, you know. It's, it's a fair amount of money for the period, anyhow. The gold rushes of the 1860s, um, they continued to deplete the labour. And uh, that great problem was that you're losing experienced hands and experienced people and they're heading uh, tossing in their tools, as we said, and you know, trying their luck in uh, New South Wales. 
the navvies at that stage who opted to travel hundreds of kilometres, try their hands on the gold fields um, rather than stay the railway works. I think the ones who stayed here were the ones who probably more experienced and probably knew more about the railway and you know what they the work that was going to be encouraged. Because you've got a smaller workforce, then you know they're go, obviously going to get paid more as well too. So you know they're the ones who decide to stick it. So smaller numbers building the railway, but obviously it must be more productive or the fact that a lot of the hard work had already been achieved, they could actually start getting towards the end of the construction work. So getting towards the end of the construction work, when did the first train make its way up the range? Yes, the workers were discharged from the work further down the line as it was completed. They made their way up here. Early February 1867, I think there were about 1,300 employed on the works again. Papers were talking about the end of April. The railway between Ipswich and Toowoomba would be completed. And you asked about when the first train made its way up here to Toowoomba. That's a good question, Annette, because it was done by stealth, as they'd say in this day and age. Trains had actually been coming up the range, you know, like construction trains and things like that, but not all the way through to Toowoomba. There's actually a very interesting newspaper account down at Hellerden not long after the line had been built. And I remember reading this, you know, 30 years ago, but they actually spoke about the original Aboriginal inhabitants were actually on a walk through their country. And that's how it was described. They were walking through their land. And they came across and they, it's this marvellous um, account that they're having a look and they're seeing a steam locomotive. You know, it might have been their, one of their first encounters or something like that. But again, it was a wonderful thing. They were just looking at the locomotive and it was almost a shrug of the shoulders. And says, oh, yeah, that's interesting, <laughs> sort of thing, you know. Which is, okay, yeah, well, so what else have you got? Yeah, all right. But again, you know, it was a very interesting that the railway's starting, you know, to become part of the life and things like that. The first train got up here, you know, it was April the 12th of 1867. It was a special train that had been uh, come up from Ipswich. It left at 6.30 in the morning, got here at 12.15, so it's a nearly a six-hour trip uh, coming up. It stopped at all the navy camps along the way, so you've got to imagine, you know, people turning out. They were saying this is the first train going all the way along the railway works from Ipswich to Toowoomba because obviously the rails were laid all the way here. And uh, you can imagine the little whistles on the steam locomotive, you know, whistling out and everything like that. Um, stopping so people could see it go through and um, it got here into the station in 1967 on April the 12th and apparently I heard the whistles all over Toowoomba <laughs> announcing the arrival of that first train coming up here. The other thing too, it took everyone by surprise. <laughs> no one knew it was happening and uh, always thought that was good. It was basically the contractors and everything like that having, the, I think it was almost like their own private trip, you know, saying, you know, we'll see how far up we can get up the range. No one knew it was coming. And then the next thing, this you know, train with uh, these uh, dignitaries appear out of nowhere, basically, yeah. We kind of did that with the first mm. part of our railway as well, where we kind mm-hmm. of did the trial <laughs> run. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting to see that we keep doing these. <laughs> oh, look, his train. It's one of the favourite questions I get asked a lot, Annette, is about when did the railway line open? I said, what do you mean? <laughs> I said, officially, there's an official day, you know, where it's officially open with, um, you know, the grand... Um, you know, the grand ceremonies and things like that. But if you look in the working way, you know, it's obviously some time before then because, you know, they have to get, you know, the construction trains and had to come in and deliver rails and sleepers or things like that or, you know, other things. So technically, yeah, which day does it open? Is the day your first train comes in? Or the more proper thing is officially open when we have the um, official ceremony that goes with it. So, yeah, so it was a clandestine affair. And uh, as you said, yeah, it's all like the yeah, the temper, I guess, where, you know, the next couple of decades with railway openings and things like that. Yeah. So when did we have our first revenue service on the Toowoomba line? Ah, uh, that's good. The official opening took place on the 30th of April, 1867, and it was absolutely foul, rotten, raining weather. In fact, um, when they're coming up the range, the two steam locomotives on the front, one of them actually um, derailed because yeah, the works weren't up to scratch. 
So what happened is everyone got off and they re-railed the locomotive. Now, there's actually a fella, um, uh, Wilcox, I think it was, who was coming up the range and uh, he, he was worried, you know, because he said, you know, the heavy rains and, you know, the new works and everything like that and they're wondering if they'd hold up to all the heavy rain and everything. But um, they actually managed to get up here, uh, the train coming up from Ipswich, double header. And when they got up to the top here, there was going to be a very big banquet as well. That was a great success. But this fellow who came up the line, he was—he said, well, it was very nice to get up here. But he said, I was terrified about what would happen when we go back down the range the next day. So it was 30th of April that they actually had the official opening train come up for revenue services and uh, for the line open for traffic and that. It's actually the 1st of May that the railway department went. So opening event on the 30th of April and then the um, official opening and the line being open was the 1st of May, 1867. How do we know this? There's a plaque down on the platform that was uh, went up in 1967 for the centenary and it says it there as well too, isn't it? So, yeah. And uh, back in 1992, a small A10 locomotive that was restored by volunteers, so that would have been 125 years old, the locomotive, it actually did a sort of recreation run for the 125 years of the railway up here, the little A10, built in 1965. It's um, part of QR's Heritage Fleet. It's an exhibit at the Workshops Rail Museum. It actually did a run from uh, Brisbane to Toowoomba, and it took about six or seven hours to do the journey up the hill. It had one and a half carriages behind it, and uh, it arrived up here. The weather was much better that day. It's the single A10, and it managed to make its way up the uh, Toowoomba, up the Toowoomba Range and arrived here. And I think at that stage, the weather was beautiful. And there were a couple of hundred people to see the uh, train come in, you know. And it was a really remarkable uh, recreation of the event. And how do I know? I was on the train. So you briefly touched on what it was like being on the train coming up the range. What was it actually like? It was remarkable. Um, you read newspaper accounts and you read uh, a lot of other things in it. And a lot of people that came to Queensland, they honestly considered... This was, of course, you know, pre-Coranda Railway and uh, the Barren Gorge Line. They actually always considered one of the um, highlights. It was a different railway back then. It was very much, you know, narrow cuttings, spindly bridges. You've got tunnels, you know, a couple of places. Some people thought, oh, you know, the mountainsides are going to overwhelm us on the train, you know. It's, you know, this little thing is snaking its way up the hill and, you know, the engine would be darting in and out of cuttings and that and darting through tunnels and they go along and there'd be, you know, suddenly a bridge would appear underneath you. So it was, you know, seemed like high adventure or something like that. There was actually um, a wonderful description by um, a woman who came up here, and she said, "Look, the scenery we saw while crossing the ranges was really grand. The railway spanning wide gorges, rushing through steep yellow cuttings, which would be right, although it tends to be red soil up here, burrowing under great hillsides that seemed ready to overwhelm us, winding around the ravines of deep slopes with the railway line running in parallel away on the opposite side of the ravine. So it's almost like you know this train, you know, chasing its way up the hill." It would have been quite remarkable and quite a number of them actually said for many years after, you know, and people travelling in and out of Queensland on the old intercolonial line, the interstate line via Warwick, Wollongar and that, they always said it was, you know, the highlight in many ways was coming that uh, 30 kilometres up the range. Yeah, quite remarkable. It would be interesting. So if they're travelling back to New South Wales and around on the train, hmm. that's pretty flat, really. <laughs> so the range would be all steep and we've got all the tunnels and the cuttings. Yep. Totally different experience for them. Pretty much, although if you come up to New England as you used to, um, I mean, coming up, you know, 5,000 feet in the old currency. And don't forget, you know, if you go through places like Ben Lomond and Guyra on what was the Great Northern Railway coming up through uh, Tenerfield and those areas, in winter you go through blizzards, you go through snow, and then you come to uh, Queensland as well. So, uh, yeah, basically, you know, it was a big climb up to Toowoomba, then you climb again to Stanthorpe and Wollongarra, 
keep climbing to Tenerfield and Glen Innes and those areas as well. The railways used to promote it so well. They'd have special brochures and tourist brochures extolling the virtues and, you know, the wonderful mountain air and things like that and travelling through um, you know, this part of the world in the 1920s and travelling down through Stanthorpe, you know, where there were lots of um, apple orchards and things like that. You know, it was, yeah, really good for mental health and things like that, you know. Yeah, so from the 1860s, it was always considered something pretty grand indeed sort of thing, you know. But, of course, as we always say, there's always another story to be told about such things, Ned, anyway. Indeed. Maintaining the main range today involves a lot of machinery. However, is there any work that gets carried out that you feel still takes us back to where the railway was built? Not a great deal on the range because uh, it's all concrete sleepers now, but we still do a lot of uh, timber timber sleeper insertions just using our, uh, you know, like basic hand tools, you know, like picks and shovels, etc. But on, on the range now we have a lot of concrete, bigger size rail. Uh, the bridges have disappeared. Um, we still do a reasonable amount of culvert work, obviously still using uh, heavy machinery, but... Um, no, a lot of the work now is done by machines. You can still see what they would have done in the olden days is incredible, you know. You still see all the um, brickwork and the um, cuttings, etc. You know, that, that sort of doesn't happen much anymore. But we did do some work in a tunnel once where we had to um, get in a, um, a specialised brick person because the, the bricks were falling out of the roof of the tunnel. And um, we had to um, even trying to find bricks of that sort of... Um, nature, you know, like historical looking bricks or the old and old and tight bricks, you just can't go to a brick place and get bricks that actually match in with the historical stuff. So it, it was very interesting. And then because the, 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 the tunnels in the, the bricks are sort of lined three and four deep and you can actually see where they'd fallen out and we had to carry out the repairs. It was, um, it was just, um, yeah, good to see. Yeah, it was interesting. We've covered that in a previous podcast, how the bricks went from being Mm. just one layer at the start Mm. to then the whole way through to then three and four layers deep. Yeah, that was the Victoria Tunnel, you know, because they had so many problems when they built it with all the different courses and skins of bricks and everything like that. Yeah, I think we actually did the the, um, repairs to the bricks in Tunnel 3 on the Toowoomba Range when I was there. Yeah, it was good. You know, you got the sort of... The smaller brick is the arch and then your big sandstone sort of bricks down the down the sides. Do you think that sometimes you can feel the history of a railway line? Or is there anything about it that seems to you to really sum up the character of the place? You know, every time I go down on the range, you can just sense that it's just steeped, you know, just, I don't know how you really describe it, you know, like it's unique, it's just not like, you know, someone's just, you know, dropped the dozer in and, does a new track in and put sleepers and that down. You know, you, you just go down there and you can just sense that, you know, them old guys, you know, back in them days just worked so hard to, to, to get something that looks so beautiful. Yeah, it gives you new respect yeah. when you go down there and you think about what they had. Yeah, and just not um, any sort of cuttings, you know. There's When they've made them, they've put bricks in them and they just look really good. Pride in their work. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yep. And, and to know that it was all done probably by man and horse, you know. As soon as you go down there and you, and you know that nothing's been carved out of there by a dozer or, you know, it's been all hard labour. It's just... Even though, you, you know, the, the track now is all concrete and, and new rail and that, you can still see or sense that 
geez, there's a lot of work going into this and a lot of pride. When you actually work on the range, do you see any evidence, I guess, you know, from the 1860s, like any evidence, the old pick marks or anything like that there around yeah, the place? Yeah, some of the cuttings have still got does. You know, the, you can just see it must have been extremely hard work in them days. You know, when I first started, it was still all manual labour, but nothing compared to what them guys would have done, you know, using picks and that to, to dig your way through a mountain or through a cutting was incredible. The line was originally built as a passenger line. Do we still use it as a passenger line now? Oh, it was built for everything, Annette. It was a general-purpose railway. There was passenger services that were provided from the opening. Um, there were mixed trains, you know, which were carrying you know, goods, livestock, passengers as well. They had the special passenger service and until 1930 when they built the railway line that came up through um, Richmond Gap in New South Wales and into South Brisbane. This was the intercolonial, this was the main line, this was the interstate railway. So everything had come up through here as well. The major passenger services there for you coming up from Sydney, post-1930, that all changed. You know, you came up through uh, Kyogle and those areas as well. So, yeah, but uh, there's the passenger service and uh, there was a lot of uh, livestock, a lot of goods, a lot of grain, you know, a lot of agricultural product. Wool. <laughs> In the early days, lots of wool. Yes, always come back to wool. In the more modern period, and I'm talking about over the past, you know, 20, 30 years, there's been the coal traffic that's developed. Still a lot of grain traffic, in fact, um, that you know, comes out of this part of the world as well. Not as much passenger service in this day and age because by virtue of the fact, you know, that railway route, you know, dates from the 1860s, you know, it's um, faster, as you know, by the road journey and that. But um, the interesting thing is they carry probably more in a week or even a month, you know, down the Toowoomba Range Railway than was envisaged, you know, for an entire year of traffic or something like that when the line was built. And there was one other interesting story, thinking, Annette, you reminded me earlier on with the tunnels. Robert Ballard, when he designed those tunnels in the 1860s, he calculated the amount of weight. You know, you've got an entire mountain basically you know, pressing down on these uh, things that go through, you know, um, pinches and you know, ridges and things like that in the torn branch. He actually calculated the weight that would be pushing on these things. He calculated, I think, in 100 years or it was in about, you know, I forget how long, what they call lateral movement, which is the push, the weight on those tunnels, how much it pushed it down the hillside. He calculated about three to four inches. And guess what? I mentioned that I forget how many years ago, he was bang on the money. <laughs> he actually calculated that force and how much it actually moved, you know, the tunnels downhill. That was remarkable. I love that they were planning mm. longevity instead of let's just build this and get it done. Precisely, Annette, anyway, yeah, an investment, an investment for uh, the colony and for the future. So, Greg, I think it's interesting that we don't have a passenger service out here and it's not commonly known either. Like, I've recently had a friend who's moved back um, to Australia from overseas after a long time. He wanted to buy a car in Toowoomba. He's like, I'm just going to buy a train ticket out to Toowoomba. Mm. Do you think that's interesting? Is it common knowledge? Uh, Yeah, it's an interesting story, all right. But, um, yeah, there was actually um, for many years, actually, and I think it was until... um, the late 1960s and that, but they actually had uh, what they call a coordinated bus service. Um, up here, I think it was McCafferty's, ran it for many, many years uh, going back and uh, basically was a shortcut. So um, you catch the train um, up from Brisbane Rail Motor in later years and that to Helen and then you get on the bus and then have you up here in the hill without the hour and 20 minutes or thereabouts coming up the rest of the Toowoomba range. And that would actually start happening from an early era as well. The line was built in the 1860s, but now inland rail and you know, different alternatives and things like that. It'll be interesting to see where that all goes. And, uh, well, as I said to someone you know, at the beginning of the 21st century, I hope to see you know, a railway line built to Redcliffe. Um, that's happened. 
the Inland Railway, that, that's an old idea. It's been really going around since the 1880s. There's work happening on that too. So um, it'll be interesting to see in years to come, you know, what the next eventuality is. But I'm fairly sure that a lot of the people who built the line in the 1860s and even after um, you know, when that time does come, there'll be a lot of testaments to all the work that went on in the 1860s, you know, and 160 years ago, you know, still bear the railway testament to it. And I'm fairly sure of that. Thank you for listening to our podcast today. I hope you've enjoyed learning about the main range. In the next episode of the Queensland Rail History Podcast, we delve into the legacy of Queensland Rail's bloom and wonderful gardens, well-kept lawns, flower pots, and the garden competition that beautified our stations of the past. And we'll find out which stations are still flowering today. Oh, be a blooming wonderful time, obviously. But uh, I think we'll actually you know, not nip it in the bud first up, and we'll actually talk about uh, places like um, Barua. We'll talk about uh, Holmes, Coranda, Spring Bluff, which is still the great survivor of the old gardens competition today. And um, oh well, hopefully it'll be a full blossoming exercise next time. We want to thank you for listening to today's episode and Greg's bad puns. A huge thanks to our special guest, Gavin Anderson. If you have any questions about our rail history, please message us on the Queensland Rail Instagram or Facebook accounts. You can also email the team at communitypartnerships.com.au. We'd love to hear from you and what you love about our podcast and what you'd like us to feature in a future episode. You've been listening to the Queensland Rail History Podcast, hosted by Greg and myself, Annette, with a new episode every month.